welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Matt Carpenter on September 11th, Lord's Day Service. Psalm 91 begins, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I will trust. He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor for the destruction that walks in darkness, or the pestilence that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. This psalm has been read by men throughout history, especially in times of trouble. In A.D. 878, one king in particular needed it. King Alfred of Wessex had been betrayed by his friends and was chased out of his kingdom. After leading his troops in defense of that kingdom, all he had to show for it was a small ragtag bunch of followers hidden away in a marsh. It would have been for him quite easy to give up at the time, And as many of us have faced periods like this, when you're in the midst of something and discouragement is overwhelming you, you don't think, yes, my next decision will affect the rest of my life and the rest of world history. But his did. Whether to give up or not would affect not only the history of Wessex or even the history of Britain, it will affect the history of all of Western Christendom. Alfred was born in 849 to King Athelwulf of Wessex and his wife Osberg. Now, if any of you are native Anglo-Saxon speakers and can pronounce those better, please let me know afterwards and I'll receive correction there. He began life as a favored son of his parents. He was interested in poetry, but also he was trained as a warrior. This was a tempestuous time in history. The Vikings had been attacking the nations of the British coast. And they were a pagan people. They worshipped false gods. And they sacrificed their enemies to those false gods. Do not let your watching of Thor inform your idea of who the Vikings were. It, it, it just doesn't work. Thor today, the movie, is to actual Vikings. Oh, goodness, I didn't prepare a great analogy here. So I'll go ahead and admit that. I can't think of something, but just think of, it's the equivalent. Have you ever seen the short film Godzilla vs. Bambi? Have you ever seen that before? It was a very early Uh, in the history of animated films. And it shows this cute little deer 
it's, it's just very, very few seconds, this cute little deer, and you just look at him, and of course, it's black and white, your heart goes out to him, and, and all of a sudden, bam, this huge paw just stomps down on him, and then it says the end, and it rolls the credits. Okay? That's Thor to the actual Vikings. Okay? They were a brutal, bloodthirsty people. If there is a way to kill someone and make it hurt, they knew how to do it. When they attacked, they saw, and rightfully so, that the, that the battle was not merely us versus these, this group. It was us versus our gods versus their gods. Remember the story of when Judah fought with the opposing army and they defeated them? And the opposing army said, well, okay, their gods are the gods of the hills, but our gods are the gods of the valley. Now, for us, we think, our God is a God everywhere. What's the problem? Well, that's not the way ancients thought. They believed that every geographical area has different gods, and those gods, whoever controls one area may not control another. But then, the, the God of Judah, Yahweh, he comes through and he starts saying, no, it's I own everything. And that's the way the Anglo-Saxons viewed their life. They said that our, the true God, Yahweh, is going after, is pursuing these Viking gods. The Vikings were ruthless in their attack against the church. Now, the British Isles at this point had been evangelized years or centuries earlier. Christians had brought the gospel to the area and it had borne fruit. But even at this point, by the 800s, the love of many had gone cold. Historians of that time believed, and it's quite reasonable still, that the Vikings... Now, this is fact. It's not the, the, the reason behind it is what's in question. But we know that when the Vikings would go to an area, the first place they would attack was the church and the monasteries. That's, that's the most important place to destroy. Now, those of you who understand battle tactics, you know. Why do you go to one particular place first? That's where the source of the power is, Right? If you want to take out your enemy, you take out your enemy where his strength lies. Vikings understood. Where does the strength of the, this people lie? It lies in their churches and in their monasteries. It lies where prayer to their gods, their God goes up. And they would make sure, the Vikings would make sure that everyone knew how they dealt with priests. They would leave them in all manner of disturbed ways for people to see this is what happens when we, are going, when we come after your religious leaders. When the Vikings killed Alfred's father and eventually his brothers who all took the throne before him, they were in line before him, it looked pretty bleak. He became king at the age of 21. His brother, excuse me, his kingdom, Wessex, was the only Anglo-Saxon kingdom free from Viking rule. And it had a target on its back because of that. The Vikings had taken 
all the other areas. The Viking king Guthrum was terrorizing the border. So at one point they launched a surprise attack on Wessex. And of course Alfred and the Saxons were defeated and they fled to a small two-acre marsh. So for Alfred, this was the turning point in his life. He believed that God would use him to defeat these enemies. But then as he looked around, there was no hope left. At least no military hope. They did not have expectation. He had a small group of followers who remained and they're hiding. Think of David when Saul was going after him and he had to hide in caves. That's what Alfred was having to do with his group of mighty men, or at least the mighty men who were left. Alfred described this, and we still do have some of his writings uh, available. You can see this in, uh, there's actually still the works of King Alfred are around. You can purchase them. But Alfred compared this experience to King Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar was out in the field for seven years, when he came to the end of himself and he eventually bowed his knee to the true God. Alfred said that this, that's what this was for him. This time when he was removed, he was separated Who's at the end? His own end. Then, in 878, Alfred led this small group of Saxons against the experienced Vikings. The odds were not in their favor, obviously. But they had one thing going for them. They had excellent leadership. Alfred said, the key to victory was to fight in faith, knowing the Lord is on our side. Then, on the morning of the battle, he encouraged them, as Joshua did, to, his, to the people of God. And as God himself had told Joshua, be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you. And then he led them in a prayer. That prayer became famous. We actually have a version of it in our hymnal. It's King Alfred's war song. It goes like this. And this is pretty close to the actual, to, to, what, I, uh, to uh, what I, Alfred actually prayed. It said, when the enemy comes in, a roaring like the flood, coveting the kingdom and hungering for blood. The Lord will raise a standard up to lead his people on. The Lord of hosts will go before, defeating every foe. Some men trust in chariots and some trust in the horse. But we will depend on the name of Christ our Lord. The Lord has made my hands to war and my fingers to fight. The Lord lays low our enemies, but raises us upright. For the Lord is our defense, 
Yesu defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu defend. A thousand will fall at my left hand, ten thousand on the right. And yet he will defend us from the arrow in the night. Protect us from the terrors of the teeth of the devourer. Imbue us with your spirit, Lord. Encompass us with power. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu, defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu, defend. Now, I'm going to tell you what. If I heard someone who's a strong leader, who was, who was saying that to me, I mean, that gets me fired up just reading it. So this group of men, when they heard Alfred saying this, and, Grant, and I will also add, Alfred was slightly more physically imposing than I am standing here before you right now, just you know, to kind of give you a little bit more of the, the background of him. But that day, the Lord did go before them. They won a resounding victory against the Vikings and their king, Guthrum. Now that was one battle, and they had to fight many more. But this was the turning point for the kingdom of Wessex. From this point back, they would be on the offensive. They would pursue the Danes. They were turning the tide through the power of God. So as they're doing this though, as they're pursuing, as they're pushing back, they still have a problem. That is, there is no culture. You could say, in a very literal sense, Alfred was a culture warrior. Because there was two very different cultures opposing one another here. The, the pagan Danish Viking culture and the Christian Anglo-Saxon culture. But the Christian Anglo-Saxon culture was, had all but decimated at this point. There was not much left to them. They had largely even adopted many of the pagan customs like Israel of old. Alfred knew in order to defend Wessex, though, the first thing was to build actual defenses. So he developed a plan for a standing army. He built walls around towns and stationed soldiers in each town to train the citizens and lead the citizens in their defense. He designed an improved road system. He revamped the currency, building new mints and establishing silver coins that were more valuable than the former coins and also coins that, that retained their value. There was a strong push to not deflate the currency. I know we're not used to currency that can't be deflated, but, but it has happened in history, I promise you. There have been a few times, and this was one of them. But beyond this, as I said, the people's hunger for Christ had begun to go dormant. Alfred knew we must become Christ-like, not just fight these enemies. We must actually not in, only in our individual lives, we must create institutions, we must create a culture that together follows the Savior. 
The people had adopted, in many cases, a superficial knowledge of Christ, but their experiential knowledge was lacking. And that distinction is still one that we see today. I mean, for, for many of us, probably, if you went from one culture that was more low church and that, that, that really prized authenticity... When you come into a liturgical church, you can think, well, they do a lot of the same things every week. So they, they can't really mean it if you do that. But you know what? Authenticity in anything can be faked. Right? We've seen authenticity faked before. When's the last time we shook a politician's hand? We see this. We, we, we can see it in the most, I don't say this in a denominational way, but it, even in the most charismatic places, we see when there's a push for emotion, well, you got to have more than just your emotion. If that's the only thing you have, you're, you're lacking. But for, for the Christians at this time, they were, they were emphasizing the forms of worship, but in many cases lacking the inner part of worship. Alfred said that the Viking attacks were God's judgment on, his, on the people there in Wessex and all of Britain because of their idolatry. He said, you've adopted the gods of the Vikings, you've adopted the foreign gods, and now the foreign gods have ruled over you. We still see this, even now. Whoever your gods are, those are the ones that you run to in difficult times. He wanted to, to restore true education and worship, but largely had to start from scratch. What the people hadn't neglected on their own, the Vikings had destroyed. There were very few books to speak of at the time. Alfred knew something, was, he knew that there was a need for, for growth in learning. The foundation for freedom is not having an abundance of choices. That's how we're taught. How do you know if you have freedom? If you can choose 53 things that you want to have for supper or 1,206 channels to watch, that's freedom. No, freedom is actually when your desires are harnessed so that you can pursue, you are able to pursue what is right and virtuous. That is the traditional Christian definition of freedom going all the way back even to Scripture itself. How do you know that you're free in Christ if you're bound to Christ? How do you know that you have freedom? Well, can you, when you face temptation, do you have the ability to resist it? I don't just mean the theoretical ability. I mean, do you have the actual strength and ability to do so? That's freedom. 
Alfred wanted, though, and, and he believed the way to help train people in freedom is to increase the education in Scripture and in liberal arts. So that's one of, that was one of his priorities. One quote uh, from Ben Merkel's book, Ben will be preaching for us actually here in a few weeks, but if you've not read his book, The White Horse King, it's really good. And I've taken much of what I have in this lecture from that book. And also, while I'm just throwing out a few sources, if you, if you really want to, to go really hard nerd on this, which I'll, I'll openly admit, something I enjoy doing, uh, a few other authors who are really good. One is Paul Cavill, uh, C-A-V-I-L-L. He's written several books on Anglo-Saxon Christianity. It's really good. Uh, the Life of King Alfred by, uh, his last name is Asser, A-S-S-E-R, is one. And then just the actual works of King Alfred is available. It's very old, but it's, you can find it online. Anyway, but... Ben Merkel says this, If Christian virtues were to return to England, then the Anglo-Saxons would need to return to Christian learning. With an eye towards restoring this learned piety to the people, Alfred orchestrated a tremendous revival of literacy, a revival that culminated in the greatest literary renaissance ever experienced in Anglo-Saxon Britain. Fighting for your culture is great, but unless you have a culture that's built, what are you fighting for? You can't beat something with nothing. Yes, you can beat down your enemies physically. But what do you actually have to hand off to them? This is a lesson, if you will allow a brief foray into modern American diplomacy or the like thereof, There is a reason why now, as our country and other Western countries have attempted to send to export our perspectives, our beliefs, our values to others, and then what happens when we finally take our hand off and say, all right, we've told you of all the wonders of the god Demos. We've told you how great liberal democracy is. Now, you've seen it. Don't you want all this? And we're, gonna, we're out now. And what happens? Do they say, well, of course. Thank you. We appreciate this. We're going to have this civilization. We're going to adopt your civilization for the rest of our existence. No. They revert back. Why? Because what is on offer currently from the, the Western powers is it has nothing to do with truth. It is a system. A secular system. So you have to have something worth imitating if you actually will retain that. How can you have a literary society though when people have never read Christian books? So Alfred himself learned Latin. 
and immediately began reading the Old and New Testaments in addition to the church fathers. And he was amazed at what he learned. The greatest books of the time were in Latin, a language very few could understand, certainly in Anglo-Saxon Britain. So he, Alfred began translating books from Latin into Anglo-Saxon. He didn't, just, he didn't just get someone else to. He did bring others in, but he, said he wanted to do it himself. He built schools to combat illiteracy. He restored churches that had been decimated. He contributed to building monastic institutions. And often, back then, monasteries and schools were together. He held the scandalous notion that the gift of reading great works should not be the sole possession of scholars, but should be the gift, a gift given to all free men. So schools were set up to teach children how to read. And this is the great gift of Christianity to the world. When Christianity goes into a place, one of the things you find is literacy rises. That, that, that just, it happens because that, that's part of the emphasis. We want to teach people to read. How many of us take the, the gift of reading for granted? It's just what you do. Can't help it. Well, you could help it. Thankfully, you don't. Many of us, though, think nothing of it. But that is a gift not of the pagan gods. Darkness does not bring literacy. The only reason we still emphasize literacy is because we are still working and spending the capital of Western Christendom. That's, that's why literacy has the, the, the appreciation that it does. He translated Gregory the Great's Pastoral Care. Pastoral Care is a book, it's one of the first books on how to be a good shepherd. Translated by a great leader in the early church, one of the church fathers. And it's I mean, it, it, it's the type of book that when you read it, and again, it's available online. You can read it. It doesn't cost anything. It reads like something that was translated, or it could have been written two weeks ago. Because the points are fantastic. But Alfred translated pastoral care specifically for the priests of Anglo-Saxon Britain. He wanted them to have the best resource available at the time so they could shepherd their people. So he did. He also worked on translating the Psalms. Ben Merkel points out at one point that the reformers used Alfred's, or the, the reformers said that Alfred's translation was a forerunner to their own work of translating all of Scripture. And I would add here that Alfred got into a little bit of hot water with some of the powers that be a little further east in the church. They were not very keen on him translating the Psalms. They said, you know, once you start this, 
you could open up something that we really don't want. And Alfred, in all of his great understanding ways, said, I don't care. And did it anyway. He wanted his people to have access to the Word of God. And this trend will continue. You will see often who are those who are famous for translating early translators of Scripture into the common language. They're from Britain. I'm not saying Britain is only the Brits. But they were doing this and they followed the example. They pointed to the example of Alfred. But it's not just to claim brilliance. No, we're in a Reformed church. I mean, we, we know here, and I've heard, I mean, I've heard people say, and I've said it before, you know, you come into a Reformed or a Presbyterian church, these people read. And, and, and that's true. They do. But sometimes our ditch can be, we read so much that we actually kind of forget what, what are we reading for. Well, we know why. We got debates to win. There's people that we have to argue to the ground verbally. We're going to wrestle them. We're going to put them in a submission move that they can't escape from because our apologetics are just like that. That is the purpose of apologetics, right? Make sure that, you, that, that your opponent rise in agony while you stand over there like this. Of course not. It is to bring the light of Christ into a dark place. And so this is something, again, Alfred was pointing to. He's saying, we translate these works. We translate Scripture. We translate other great works because we want the saints to grow. It's not just to know. It's for their growth. He also, though, reorganized the law code based on Roman and old, the English tradition, and biblical law. He strengthened the laws against oath-breaking. He set aside the 12 days for all men to be off to celebrate Christmas. You heard of the 12 days of Christmas, right? Raise a glass to King Alfred when you get a chance. At Christmas, because it's King Alfred who really put that into practice. He, he said, we should celebrate and we should let the people off during that time because it is a celebration. It would go from Christmas Day all the way through to January the 6th when Epiphany starts. He also set aside, I mean, if you thought Christmas was awesome, he set aside 14 days for Easter. You say, look, he's giving all these peasants time off. Doesn't he know that that doesn't boost the GDP? And we're Americans, we know about the GDP. Economic proficiency is the most important, what do I sound like? I sound like I'm talking about a foreign god, don't I? 
He understood this. Yes, we strive for excellence and we should... He, he, pursued trade as, as they could, but he also understood that the, the culture of a people is not built solely on how much income you take in. And there are other holidays that he set aside as well, but eventually, while they're doing all of these reforms and, and pursuing these improvements, there's all, they're also fighting battles. But after several more attacks over the years, the Danish Vikings left for good because they could not defeat the Saxons. And then, at the age of 50, Alfred died. This was a full life for that time. And he was recognized as a faithful Christian warrior. Now, there are several lessons I believe we can take from the life of Alfred. Number one, we see from him that masculinity is a necessary virtue. His masculinity began with courage in God's promises and being willing to sacrifice himself for his family and his people. I mean, it's pretty simple. Now, of course, you have to work. You have to prepare. You, you can't just walk out one day and say, I'm going to be a faithful warrior. No, you have to train. You have to grow. You have to pursue these things. The life of a man, Alfred understood, was about, is about discipline. About training before the trials come. Before the battle is here. But a man should be trained to fight physically, but also spiritually for his home. We hide God's word in our heart. That, and that's really, that, that's where a lot of our training begins. It begins with hiding the word. Alfred believed, and he did train his soldiers, he trained them well. But in addition to training, he could also recite great depths of poetry. He even wrote some of his own poetry. So, so let me read you part of a poem that Alfred wrote called, Where to Find True Joys. Will ye seek within the red, excuse me, the wool red gold on the green trees tall? None, I wot, is wise that could, for it grows not there at all. Neither in wine gardens green seek, the gem, seek they gems of glittering sheen. Would ye on some hilltop set, when ye could list to catch a trout or a carp your fishing net? Men, methinks, have long found out that it would be a foolish fare, for they know that they are not there. But of all things, tis most sad that they foolish are so blind, so besotted and so mad that they cannot surely find where the ever good is not and true pleasures hidden lie. Therefore, never is their life, excuse me, never is their strife after those true joys to spur in this lean and little life they have witted, they half-witted deeply err, seeking here their bliss to gain, that is, God himself in vain.
Not bad for a warrior poet and king. He was a shepherd to his people. And he was a shepherd and a leader in all respects. This is masculinity for Alfred. But also, another lesson we can learn is to not despise the day of small beginnings. Though Alfred was, again, of decent size, he was not anywhere close to the Viking kings. He did not command as they did. But he had something that the Vikings did not have. And this is something you find among the Christian warriors in the past. And that is, he had hope. He had hope in God's promises that God's people will prevail. If they had looked at their numbers or their chances of surviving, much less being victorious, they would probably have given up. But their, their fighting, their striving was not just, we expect that our chances of victory are 58%, therefore we go. It was, we're fighting for the Lord God Almighty, therefore we go. No one at the time could imagine that we would still enjoy today the fruits of their work in our law codes, our poetry, and our culture. Another lesson from Alfred is that the only permanent defense against idolatry is Christian paideia. Yeah, I'm cheating right here. I know because I'm preaching on this as well. But it's true. He understood this. Although he led his people to defeat the Vikings, he knew the emptiness of his people's faith at the time was no match for the Vikings' paganism. In the same way, brothers and sisters, quite frankly, the vapid thing that passes for Christianity in much of America is no match for the all-encompassing, powerful demonstration of Islam in many places today. There, your Christianity needs to be full-bodied, strong, and encompass all of your life. And that should be something you can pass to your children. They needed a thorough, gospel-saturated education. And only then could they withstand the attack that was coming. Again, that's why we see today Europe being colonized, recolonized by Islam. Muslim theology makes quick work of much of secularism. In her book, Alfred the Truth Teller, Beatrice Lee says, Alfred was no cloistered scholar studying for the pure joy of learning, but a student and teacher with an eminently practical aim. His writings are designed for the education and training of citizens of a Christian state. His translations popularize the books which seem to him most needful for every man to know, famous books on theology, ancient and modern history, and geography, and philosophy. End quote. That's why he established... Schools. He translated great works 
himself. Now, of course, it was not only just the works of education, excuse me, not just the works of philosophy, of math, and of law, but it was also theology, because he retained the view that, the theolo that theology is the queen of the sciences. It harmonizes everything. At the time, ministers, priests, monks were often some of the most educated in society. Another lesson, and I don't, running close on time here, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Alfred taught, and it was much easier for him because the, the push of secularism had not reached its full bloom at the time, but he taught that a state is either submitted to Yahweh, to the true God, or to another series of gods. So Alfred, if you bring up, and I have friends that have faced this, if you bring up Alfred in modern discussion today, uh, you will probably be labeled a Christian nationalist. Because Alfred simply, and, and by that, it just, it's just, you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I mean, you don't even have to say we're going to implement everything in the Bible. You just have to say we believe that he is the true God and he reigns over kings and over nations. I mean, look, if you've been paying attention, yesterday there was a, there was a new monarch who just took an oath to the Church of Scotland and said, I will uphold the faith in Scotland and work to preserve everything that the church teaches there. That happened in the same place, in the same British Isles that where Alfred was working yesterday. Alfred was not working there yesterday, but, but the, the oath was taken yesterday. Oh, we can wish. <laughs> but a state either submits to Christ or it rejects him. Alfred viewed Jesus as a righteous warrior king, one who sacrificed himself for his people and defeated his enemies. And because of his defeat of his enemies, that victory encompasses every place. He owns all. Just all is not yet submitted to him. And lastly, we see from Alfred... We don't stop fighting till the battle's over. There were several battles in Alfred's life when his men won an initial victory, but they didn't finish off the Vikings, who then regrouped and counterattacked. So Alfred learned, and he made sure from that point on, that he would finish every battle until the enemy was either dead or captured. So for us, we face battles. We face battles in our families, in our jobs, in our civil society. We are at constant warfare. Whether we like it or not, we are tempted to stop, to quit, to let go, to put it aside, to say, maybe I can just act like nothing's going on, and that's a temptation. But in a battle like the Battle of Eddington, that was the turning point. 
Alfred understood. Some of this is just a matter of who, who can stay the longest. Who's going to weather the storm the longest time? We should engage our enemies and bring them through the work of the Spirit into captivity, to the obedience of Christ. And again, it, it begins with, your, with, with us individually walking, learning, pursuing the freedom to which we're called. And then letting that freedom display itself out from there. And then, when our battle is done, we will join our high king along with his subjects, including King Alfred, as we celebrate his victory in eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the time together, and I pray that you would help us to learn and to pursue all the calling that you have given us in its entirety. Through Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.